We now read the Holy Scriptures together in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Albeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." We read the word of God that far. We consider the teaching of our catechism this morning. In Lord's Day 25, in the back of the Psalter on page 14. Lord's Day 25. Since then, we are made partakers of Christ and all his benefits by faith only, Whence doth this faith proceed? From the Holy Ghost, who works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and confirms it by the use of the sacraments. What are the sacraments? The sacraments are holy, visible signs and seals appointed of God for this end, that by the use thereof he may the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel, namely, that he grants us freely the remission of sin and life eternal for the sake of that one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. Are both word and sacraments then ordained and appointed for this end, that they may direct our faith to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Yes, indeed. For the Holy Ghost teaches us in the gospel and assures us by the sacraments that the whole of our salvation depends upon that one sacrifice of Christ which he offered for us on the cross. How many sacraments has Christ instituted in the New Covenant or Testament? Two, namely, Holy Baptism and the Holy Supper. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as you will recall, 
Our catechism teaches us Christian doctrine from the perspective of our experience of salvation. And as we have seen, because of that, the true faith in Jesus Christ is central to the very structure of our Reformed Catechism. The Catechism asks in an earlier question, are all men as they perished in Adam saved by Christ? And the answer is no. Only those who are engrafted into Christ and who receive all his benefits by a true faith. Then the Catechism asks, what is true faith? And teaches us, that true faith is not only a sure and certain knowledge or conviction about things that we cannot see, but things which God reveals to us and promises to us in his word, but faith is also a hearty confidence or trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and a personal assurance that Christ has died for me and not only for others. Later, the Catechism asks us, what is the profit of believing in Jesus Christ? And the answer that is given is that I am righteous in Christ. I am justified in Christ, freely, graciously, by faith alone. And by faith in Christ, I'm an heir of eternal life. Not by the works that I perform, because none of the works that I perform are perfect before God. Only the works of Christ are perfect, and therefore I am saved and justified by faith alone. And now the Catechism asks a different question in our Lord's Day. In light of all of that context, the Catechism now asks this question. What then is the source of your faith? Whence cometh, or whence proceeds, this faith? You say that you are saved by faith only and not by your works. Well then, where does that faith come from? That's the question that we consider this morning. The question is this. How does someone become a believer? How does someone who was an unbeliever become a believer? Or... How does someone who was born to children of believers, baptized as an infant of believers, raised in the church, catechized in the church, how does that child of believers come for the first time to a conscious and living and active faith in Jesus Christ? How does that happen? Where does that faith come from? Whence does that faith proceed? In addition... The question is this, how does a person who has become a believer remain a believer? How does a person who has received this faith continue to have this faith, continue to exercise this faith, continue to walk in this faith, to persevere in that faith to the end of his life? Even in the midst of great trials and sorrows and troubles, even in the midst of great Doubts and temptations and fears as he walks through the valley of tears and the shadow of death. How is it that a person continues to believe in Jesus Christ for his salvation? Where does that faith come from? That's the question. So I call your attention to the theme, the working of faith in our hearts. First, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, by the preaching of the gospel. And finally, by the use of the sacraments. In answer to this great question of the catechism, where does that faith come from? The catechism says, on the basis of Scripture, from the Holy Ghost. That's where it comes from. It comes from the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit the third person of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is sent forth into our hearts, is the one who works that faith. The Holy Spirit is the one who causes a person who is an unbeliever to become a believer. The Holy Spirit is the one who causes that little child of believers 
who is three or four or five or six years old, as he or she listens to the preaching, to come to a conscious, personal, living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who does that. And the Holy Spirit is also the one who preserves that faith in our hearts. He sustains it. He nourishes it. He grows it. He causes that faith to continue so that we don't lose that faith, so that we don't fall away from Christ. He preserves that faith in us from day to day to day to day, from month to month and from year to year to year and decade after decade. Where does this faith come from? This faith that I possess today, this faith that I possessed yesterday and going back I don't know how many days, it comes from the Holy Ghost. The Apostle Paul teaches that in the chapter that we read. Notice what he says in verse 4. He says to the Corinthians that when he was in their midst, he says, My speech and my preaching was not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The Spirit and power. If it was only my preaching with fancy, flowery, eloquent speech, then you would have no faith. But that's not what it was. It was the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. And that is a power. An awesome power. Why? The Apostle says in verse 5, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That your faith should not rest upon any man but your faith rests on the powerful work of God. The Apostle is very forceful and very clear in this epistle to the Corinthians that faith comes from the power of the Holy Spirit and not from man. It does not come from any particular minister. That's one thing he wants to emphasize in this epistle. We find that in chapter 1. We find that again in chapter 3, the very next chapter, Notice chapter 3, verse 4. The apostle says, While one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? But ministers, by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase, So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. The apostle is emphatic here. Your faith does not come from any particular minister. There are people whose faith depends upon a particular minister, and they follow that particular minister. Their faith, their faith, whatever that faith is, rests upon the passion, the eloquence, the boldness, the wisdom, the charisma of a particular man. So that if that particular man should suddenly die and pass away, or if that particular man should suddenly fall away from the faith, then their faith also will crumble because their faith depends upon that particular minister. The Apostle Paul says, I didn't come to you with wisdom of words or enticing wisdom of man, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. If your faith crumbles because your minister dies or falls away from the faith, then you never had true faith. True faith comes from the Holy Spirit. Ministers are only servants whom God uses. You must remember that. We ministers have to remember that as well. We ministers are tempted by the enemy sometimes to think that the health and the growth of the church depends somehow upon us. It depends upon our gifts, upon our passion, our eloquence, our charisma, our boldness, our abilities. 
the Apostle Paul humbles every minister in this, in this epistle. He humbles every minister and says, no, it doesn't depend on you. But he also comforts every minister. The Apostle says, my dear brother, it doesn't depend upon you. God gives the increase. God gives faith. Faith comes from the Holy Spirit. It does not come from man. It does not come from any particular minister. Nor does faith originate from within ourselves. That's also a very popular notion. It has been popular throughout all the ages of history. It's still popular today. It's the notion that I am the source of my own faith. That my faith originates in my own soul, in my own heart, in my own will. That's where my faith comes from, and that I am also the foundation of my faith. My faith also rests upon my own heart, soul, mind, and will. My ability to choose, to believe or not to believe, that is the ultimate source and foundation of my faith. So think many, many, many people. But that is not possible. And that's not biblical. The Apostle Paul teaches in the chapter that we have read that our faith comes from God. Verse 10, the Apostle says, chapter 2, verse 10, But God hath revealed these things to us by his Spirit. These hidden things which eye hath not seen and ear hath not heard, these wonderful blessings of salvation, these wonderful promises and hope that is in Jesus Christ, he says, God revealed it to us by his Spirit. He goes on in verse 12, We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. The Spirit gives us that knowledge. He goes on in verse 14. The natural man, the man who does not yet have the Holy Spirit in him, that natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Foolishness. Christ is foolishness to natural man. Faith is foolishness. Natural man says, why would you make a blind leap of faith? Why would you put all your trust in a God that you don't see? Why would you put your trust in a Jesus who died, whom you've never seen? It's foolishness to man. Man cannot receive these things. They are spiritually discerned. He cannot know them, Paul says. He cannot But he that is spiritual judgeth all things. That is, he who has received the Spirit. Faith comes from the Holy Spirit. That's the teaching of the Reformed faith. The Holy Spirit is the one who works faith in us. For the first time and throughout our lives, he works that faith in us. But as we have seen in recent sermons... That does not mean that the Holy Spirit is the one who believes in us and for us and on our behalf. The Holy Spirit does not come into our hearts and replace our person. He does not come in and replace our spirit so that we no longer have a spirit. Or he does not somehow merge with our spirit so that the spirit is the one who believes and we don't believe. The Canons of Dort teach very clearly that this is a great mystery that we cannot fully understand how it is that the Holy Spirit works faith and yet we are the ones who believe. The Holy Spirit doesn't believe. We believe. The Holy Spirit works in us so that we believe. How is that? How does he do that? The Canons of Dort tries to explain it with things like this, words like this. He softens our hard hearts. He opens our closed hearts. He quickens what was dead. He moves us sweetly, softly, and powerfully, irresistibly, so that we actually believe. We do. Think of it like this. You're outside in the forest 
on a really windy day. And you're looking at the trees. And the branches of the trees are moving, wildly shaking. The leaves are all bristling. When you see that happening there, you don't wonder to yourself, how are the branches and leaves of that tree moving? How's that happening? You know, you know, you know that the tree is not moving itself. You know that the tree is not actually shaking its branches and leaves. You know that there's an invisible spiritual force. An invisible force, rather. The wind. You know that the wind is blowing through that woods. And the wind is blowing those branches and causing those leaves to rustle in the wind. And so it is, too, in the spiritual life. We notice that we have faith. We notice that we are believers. We notice we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We embrace him. We rest in him. We trust in him. And if we are to ask, where does that faith come from? How does that happen? We don't say, well, that comes from myself. I'm the source of that faith. No, yes, I'm the one believing. But that faith doesn't come from me. That faith is worked in me by an invisible spiritual force. The wind is an invisible physical force. But there's an invisible spiritual force blowing through me. And that force, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, blows through my heart so that I believe. It's a wonder of grace. And it's a great, great power. Our faith does not stand in the wisdom of men or in our free will, but stands in the power of God. How then does the Holy Spirit work? According to the Catechism, the Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and confirms it by the use of the sacraments. Let's notice, first of all, that he works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the chief and principal means that the Holy Spirit uses to work faith in our hearts. Now we confess that the Holy Spirit begins his work in the heart of a child of God before they even hear the preaching. He begins his work in the heart of the child of God immediately, directly, by coming into our hearts and engrafting us into Christ and regenerating us, making us alive without our consciousness, without our activity, without our knowledge. We confess that. But after the Holy Spirit begins his work in us in that way, he continues his work immediately. Not immediately anymore. Immediately, that is, by use of means. The Holy Spirit always uses means as he works in our hearts. And the chief means that he uses is the preaching of the gospel. He binds himself to the word of God. You find that in the catechism again and again. You find that here in our Lord's day. The word the Spirit. In Lord's Day 48, by His Word and Spirit. In Lord's Day 21, by His Word and Spirit. His Word and Spirit. It's always the Word and Spirit. Why is that? Because the Spirit binds Himself to the Word. He uses the Word. People today do not appreciate this, and we have to beware The Holy Spirit does not bind himself to dramatic productions of the life, death, suffering, and resurrection of Jesus. 
to films about Jesus, the Holy Spirit has not chosen, nowhere do we find in Scripture even the slightest hint that the Holy Spirit is pleased to use dramatic productions of the life of Jesus as the means of working faith, although you wouldn't know it today because thousands upon thousands of professing Christians try to do evangelism through the showing of Jesus films. The Holy Spirit is grieved at that. He doesn't work that way. He works through the preaching of the gospel. The Heidelberg Catechism makes that clear too. This is part of our Reformed Confession in the Lord's Day number 35, which says that he doesn't use dumb images, but the lively preaching of the word. The Holy Spirit is not pleased either to use as the chief means, the chief means, good Christian books about Jesus, or solid academic research into the life of Jesus, or personal testimonies of believers about how Jesus changed their life, or uplifting and encouraging songs that point us to our hope in Jesus. Now, many of those things are very wonderful things. And I do believe, and I do not doubt or deny, that the Spirit uses some of those things, perhaps to nudge and to lead people toward the preaching. To encourage and edify Christians in the Christian life. Good books, good research, testimonies, songs, all of that. But the scriptures are clear that the Holy Spirit is pleased to use chiefly above all other things the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is that then? It is the authoritative proclamation of the gospel by a man whom the Holy Spirit himself equips and calls and sends through the church to stand on the housetops and to proclaim Christ crucified and risen from the dead as the only ground of our salvation and our only hope for eternal life. That's the preaching of the gospel. That's what the Holy Spirit is pleased to use. The Catechism teaches us that in this Lord's Day when it asks in that 67th question, are both word and sacraments then, not just sacraments, but the word too, ordained and appointed for this end, that they may direct our faith to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Yes, indeed. For the Holy Ghost teaches us in the gospel and assures us by the sacraments. He teaches us in the gospel that the whole of our salvation depends upon the one sacrifice of Christ which he offered for us on the cross. That's what preaching does. It directs our faith to Christ and authoritatively proclaims Christ crucified as the only ground of our salvation. The apostle preaches that too in this epistle, chapter 1. Verse 23, he says, We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block. The Jews want signs and wonders and miracles. They're asking for signs and wonders. They want to see something. To the Jews a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. The Greeks want philosophy. They want discussion. They want logic. They want argumentation based on pure logic and pure reason. The Jews a stumbling block, the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, the preaching is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Preaching. The world says foolishness. But the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And so Paul expresses his commitment in the chapter that we read, verse 2. He says, Brethren, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ 
and him crucified. Paul's not saying he's committed to being an ignoramus. He's not saying he's committed not to knowing anything else except Jesus and some things about his life and death and resurrection. No, when he says that, he means, I was committed not to be an expert on anything else. I'm not an expert on anything else. I come to you as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. That's what I know. That's what I will preach to you. And I will preach that through the whole scriptures. Don't you see then? That's why the Holy Spirit is pleased to use the preaching of the gospel. Many people think that the Spirit thrusts himself into the foreground. And that almost the important thing is to be filled with the Spirit and baptized with the Spirit. In Christ, he falls into the background. But that's not what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit thrusts Christ into the foreground. He testifies of Christ. He's pleased to use the preaching of the gospel because the preaching of the gospel proclaims Christ on the cross and calls us to repent of our sins and pride and wretchedness and miseries and to believe in this Christ on the cross as the only way of escape from all of our sins and the everlasting punishment we deserve. The Holy Spirit takes this piece of wooden furniture and a man who is nothing but an earthen vessel, weak, fearful, trembling, every time he comes to the pulpit, trembling. And the Holy Spirit takes that and makes it a power, a power. That's an amazing thing and a humbling thing. But the Holy Spirit only works powerfully through the preaching that sets forth Christ. He certainly doesn't work true faith through a message that sets forth another Christ, a message that preaches another gospel that is no gospel. There is a spirit working in that preaching, too. That spirit is the devil. The devil works through the preaching of a different Christ, through the preaching of a Buddha or a Muhammad, through the preaching of man or any other false Christ. The Holy Spirit doesn't work through preaching, which is nothing but a neat, nice, cute little story with a moral lesson, or an inspirational talk about how to live a successful and healthy life, or some nice spiritual reflections and religious suggestions. How many seminaries today throughout Canada and the United States and Europe, throughout the world, produce ministers who can do nothing but that? How many? Countless. How many men stand in pulpits today in churches and do nothing more than that? Cute, nice little stories with a moral lesson attached to it. Inspirational talk about how you can live a healthier life and be a better you. That doesn't point us to Christ on the cross. There's a famine of the word today throughout lands that formerly, where formerly Christianity prevailed and was flourishing. And so I ask you, are you thankful for the good seminary that God has given to us and the godly professors of theology that God has given to us? We have already seen They are only servants of God. Faith does not come from the seminary, just as it doesn't come from any particular man. It doesn't depend upon the seminary, but God has given us a good seminary with godly professors who preach Christ. When I was in seminary, the professors taught me to preach Christ. No matter what text I'm preaching, 
If I'm preaching the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Prophets, then I am to find in whatever text I select how that text points to Christ and reveals Christ and how I can proclaim Christ through that text. Perhaps there's a promise of Christ or a prophecy or perhaps there's a law that shows us our sins and miseries and points us to Christ. Or perhaps there's a law that shows us the thankfulness we are to have for all that Christ would do for us. Or perhaps there are types and shadows that look forward to Christ. When I was in seminary too, I was taught that if I select a text from the New Testament, then I am to, in that too, find how Christ is revealed in that text, whether it's the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or the epistles, whether it's a narrative, story, or whether it's doctrine, exhortation. That's what I was taught. Now, there are no perfect preachers, and there is no perfect preaching. There never has been. There never will be. The Apostle points that out, too, in this epistle. I think it's in chapter 3. You can check that when he says that the work of some men is hay and stubble, and it will be burned up. But those men, those preachers, will be saved, but as it were, through fire. And he doesn't mean purgatory there, but he means all of the flaws in their preaching will just be vaporized. They'll be burned up. Every preacher, when he preaches, he does his very best to preach a faithful and solid sermon. But there's always mixed in with every sermon flaws, weaknesses, even errors sometimes. Those things will all be burned up. But the Lord is pleased to use weak means to work faith in the hearts of his people. Preaching may or may not be impressive. Paul says that his preaching was not impressive. Chapter 1, verse 17, he says, He did not preach the gospel with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. He didn't want to take away from the cross of Christ. The chapter that we read, chapter 2, he says, Brethren, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech, not with wisdom of words, declaring unto you the testimony of God. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power. There is preaching today that is very impressive. I've heard that kind of preaching myself. Probably you have too. Nowadays, with the internet, you can hear almost any preacher you want. You just pull up Google and you search for him, and there he is. And you can watch, and you can listen to his preaching. There are lots of impressive preachers out there. Passionate. Flashy. Witty. Eloquent. Engaging. Some of those preachers are preaching Christ. Many of them are not. There is impressive preaching. The true preaching of the gospel may be impressive, or it may not be. Now, do not misunderstand. A preacher who has no passion is a strange and peculiar thing. I imagine a preacher criticized because his preaching is dry and boring. And I imagine the preacher responding, you can't criticize me for that. I preach Christ in every sermon. You have to be content with that. Well, there's some truth to that. There is. As long as the minister preaches Christ crucified faithfully and the content is true and good and faithful, he might be very dry and monotonous 
but the Spirit will use that. Nevertheless, as one preacher to another preacher, I would probably respond to him, why are you so keen to defend your lack of passion? Why are you so keen to excuse your lack of conviction? That's what I would say. I would say to him, you preach Christ in every sermon, but you're not passionate about it? Do you really know what you're preaching? In our Bible study last Thursday, we and the young adults discussed 1 Thessalonians 5. And there's a little verse in there, quench not the spirit. What does that mean? What does the word quench mean? Quench means to extinguish. You pour water on a fire. You put it out. It's possible that we preachers quench the spirit. It's possible. That happens. We can have seasons in our ministries where we're quenching the spirit. It can even happen for a long time. What does that mean? It means that even though we talk about Christ all the time, we don't really know him. We don't really have a vital interest in him. We say a lot of good and true things. We preach him with authority, but we don't really know him. We don't really love him. That's a spirit quenching the spirit. That's a minister quenching the spirit. How terrible. Do you pray for your ministers? You need ministers who preach, who are enlivened themselves by the Spirit, not quenching the Spirit. Pray for your minister and for every minister that comes in this pulpit that he may have a vital interest in what he is preaching. These are the greatest things of all. Christ crucified for me. Now, that being said, there are ministers who are more dynamic than others. They have more vocal variety. They have more eloquence. They have more something or other. That shouldn't matter to us. We have to carefully distinguish between a man who has conviction and he believes and he loves what he's preaching and a man who just has passion. The apostle is very clear in this epistle. I did not come with excellency of speech. Do you think the apostle just spoke, though, in a dry, monotonous manner? I don't think so. I think he really cared about what he preached. Just think of his own life experience. That experience of being converted from a wicked, proud Pharisee and being humbled, saved by the grace of God, that must have enlivened his preaching throughout his life. The important thing is, as the apostle emphasizes, that the preacher preaches Christ crucified. That's what the Spirit is pleased to use. Now, I have to say a few things about the sacraments yet this morning. I don't want to emphasize that this morning because the next several Lord's Days, we're going to go into depth on the sacraments. But briefly, the sacraments are also a means that the Spirit uses. He adds the sacraments to the preaching, contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. The Roman Catholic Church, the greatest denomination in the world in terms of members, that denomination teaches that not the preaching, but the sacraments are the chief means that the Holy Spirit uses to work grace. And so in that church, the sermon just becomes a brief little homily by the priest sometimes just a recitation of some verses. There's no lively preaching because the Mass, that's what you need, the Mass and baptism and the other sacraments. They believe there are seven sacraments. 
And that fits with their doctrine of salvation. They believe salvation is not by faith alone, but by works. So this is the system. The sacraments give you grace automatically. You receive that grace, and that grace gives you the power to do works, and through those works you merit salvation. So the more you take the sacraments, the more grace you receive, the more works you perform, the more hope you have to get out of purgatory and into heaven. That's Roman Catholicism. So you can see that fits. It all fits. It's a system. It's a harmonious system. And the preaching is shoved to the side. The Reformed churches in the Reformation rejected that, that whole system. It was gradual. didn't all happen right at once. Martin Luther didn't reject it all at once. But gradually, they came to see the whole system is corrupt. The sacramental system. And they put preaching again in its rightful place. There are only two sacraments, not seven. How do we know that? Well, What is a sacrament? The word just means something sacred. Sacrament. Sacred thing. The word doesn't tell us very much about what a sacrament is. But there are many sacred things in the Bible. Many signs. Many symbols. Many figures. Think of the rainbow. Was that a sacrament? No. What about marriage? Was that a sacrament? Rome says yes. We say no. Creation ordinance. What about the laying on of hands on a preacher at his ordination? Is that a sacrament? Rome says yes. We say no. What is a sacrament? Catechism says a holy, visible sign and seal appointed by God, and it doesn't say this, but this is implied, appointed by God through Jesus and that's for all believers to direct their faith to Christ. There are many signs and figures in the Christian religion. Only two sacraments. Baptism and the Holy Supper. Christ did not institute marriage or the rainbow or the laying on of hands. He instituted baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's it. That is, he instituted those things as special sacred ordinances that must be observed by the church, for the whole church, not just for men, not just for women, not just for office bearers, the whole church, until Christ comes again. That's a sacrament. Baptism, the water, the Lord's Supper, bread and wine. That's the difference between a sacrament and preaching. Preaching is the word. We're hearing words. Sacraments, we see something. We taste it. We feel it. Those are added to the preaching. But they do the very same thing as the preaching. They don't do something different. The Holy Spirit uses the sacraments to assure us by a visible token of what he already told us in the preaching. Jesus Christ crucified is your only hope for salvation. Just think of the water of baptism, the water. There's Christ in his blood washing us. In the supper, the bread. There's Christ with his body being broken on the cross, nourishing us. And, 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 the, and the wine, his blood shed from his head and his side and his hands and feet for our forgiveness. That's the sacraments. We'll consider that in more depth in the coming Lord's Days. So, young people, you were baptized when you were infants. And now you have been listening to the preaching for many years. Some of you have made confession of faith already, but some of you have not yet. Has the Holy Spirit worked faith in your hearts? Do you believe the doctrine taught in this Christian church? Do you believe what you hear preached from this pulpit, from the scriptures, from the catechism? In this church, 
public confession of that faith opens the way to the sacraments. We look forward to the time when the Holy Spirit will lead you to make public a confession of your faith. Beloved, the preaching of the gospel and the sacraments are two of the marks of the true church. By remaining members of this congregation last year, you professed that you believe those marks are still found and manifested in this church. I believe that too. As we've seen, there's no perfect preaching. There isn't. Nowhere. But there is preaching of Christ crucified in our churches. Why? What explains that? Where does faith come from? Where does preaching come from? From the Holy Ghost. That's the answer of the Catechism. We see and we hear preaching that is scriptural, that points us to Christ. Where does that come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? He ignites a fire. He causes a lamp to burn. He puts a candlestick in that church. And the Holy Spirit is the fuel of that candlestick, causing it to burn. When we hear the pure preaching of the gospel and we see the proper administration of the sacraments, we know the Holy Spirit still burns here. The candlestick hasn't been taken away. And then we don't boast in that. What do we have to boast about? But we do give thanks to God. May he be gracious to continue to cause that lamp to shine. Amen. Father which art in heaven, we give thee thanks for the gospel of Jesus Christ, who was crucified for our sins and raised again for our justification. Direct our faith this morning to him, to his precious blood, as the only ground of our salvation. Strengthen our faith. Lift up the hands that hang down and encourage us.